let's jump into our text today um, in Luke chapter 24. It's in the New Testament. It's a latter part of your Bible. If you're not that familiar with the scriptures, uh, the Bible is divided into two testaments. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Uh, turn with me to the third book in the New Testament with the book of Luke. I'll try to give you uh, page numbers as we go about this. Now, anyone who spent time growing up in the, in the late 80s or the early 90s, remember the name Bo Jackson. Guys, remember that guy's name, Bo Jackson, and it was uh, he was a, this amazing athlete. Had been a Heisman Trophy winner in college, was the best college football player, was a major league baseball player and an All Star. Also played uh, in the NFL. Was this amazing two sport athlete, and he was great at both of them. And it was this ad campaign that seemed to be everywhere called Bonos. And in this this this. Um, Ad campaign, they made it look like he could do anything. I mean, they even in this commercial, they had him um, saying that Bono's he could he was good supposedly at tennis, golf, the luge, auto racing, and even musically. He appears on stage with Bo Diddley, and Bo Diddley looks at him and says, "You do, Bo, you don't know Diddley." And then he grabs the guitar and starts playing it, and he goes, "I guess you do know Diddley." Uh, showing that this is an amazing guy. And, and everybody knew who he was back in the late 80s and the early 90s. And uh, we fast forward from that period of time to this past week in Glendale, Arizona, where the White Sox are having their spring training and where Bo is now a special uh, instructor for the White Sox. And he's, he's standing there and this uh, boy named Drake LaRoche, who is the, uh, the son, a 13-year-old son of the starting first baseman for the White Sox, Adam LaRoche, is talking to Bo Jackson. He, he doesn't know who he is. It's fascinating because Bo Jackson is mic'd up for this, and, and this kid's like, well, you know, my dad's a professional baseball player, obviously, and we like to live in Kansas City in, the, in this offseason or wherever he's playing. And, and Bo Jackson goes, you know, I actually played for the Kansas City Royals. And he said, really? He goes, I used to also play for the California Angels, and I played for the Chicago White Sox. And he's like, you did? And he goes, yeah, and I played a little bit of football. I played a little bit of football. I played for the Raiders. And as a matter of fact, I was pretty good in college. You ever heard of the Heisman Trophy? And the kid's like, no. And he goes, well, it's the best college football player uh, that's out there. And I won uh, that award. The kid's like, you did? And he goes, yeah. And I played professional football, and I did pretty well. I played for the Raiders. They were in uh, Los Angeles then, and they're in Oakland now. But I was pretty good. He's like, you were? Yeah. He goes, as a matter of fact, I'm the only athlete ever in history to play in the, uh, in the Major League Baseball All-Star game and win the MVP and play in the Pro Bowl the same year. The kid's like, wow, that's really cool. He's just amazed. And, and Bo Jackson just keeps flipping his hat. And he's like, you know, when I played, it was so long ago that your dad was probably a kid. But here's this, this mega athlete that was known at the time, back in the day, pretty much all over the, the at least the United States. And yet this kid standing there doesn't know who he's standing with. And, it, and it's amazing to me because I think of Bo Jackson. I think of what an amazing athlete he was. And I, but then I think of how, how there are people that stand in our midst that we don't know who they are how great they are, what they've accomplished, and what they've gone through in their life. And the person who's gone through more, accomplished more, the greatest person to ever have lived was Jesus Christ. And, and we have this story, this fantastic, phenomenal story of these two disciples. They're walking on the road to Emmaus, which is about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. And these guys are just trying to figure out what just happened the last few days? This is the, the day of the resurrection that evening, and they're walking along, and they're trying to process this. I mean, have you ever gone through something so monumental that you just have to stop and think about what happened? You know, I think about September 11th, when going through that and seeing the, the planes strike the towers, and that whole day, I'm like, what does that mean? What, what, what's going on? 
how, how does this affect me? I, I'm trying to understand it. You know, there, there's just something that we, some things that we go through that are so monumental that they transform us. And there's nothing more transformational, nothing greater than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, Jesus is the most well-known figure in history. Everyone has an opinion about him. They think they know who he is. But as we'll see today, many might know about him, but very few really know him. And everybody now, you see it in the news. This past week, we're inundated with news headlines, magazine covers. People have different theories, different ideas. They have scholars on the TV proposing that they might know who Jesus is, offering up all these competing different theories but the reality is, is we really can't know Jesus unless he reveals himself to us. Just like this kid was standing by Bo Jackson, and he wouldn't know who Bo Jackson was unless Bo Jackson told him and revealed this to him. The same is with Jesus. You know, my sermon title today is, is You Can't See Jesus. He Won't Let You. Now, that's, that's, that goes against what many of us have taught all our lives. Like, what do you mean I can't see Jesus? What do you mean he's not going to let me? In this passage, we clearly see that these guys are talking about him, and yet the text says that they were kept from seeing him. Jesus didn't want them to see him yet. Not till they truly understood who he was. See, many of us might think that we see him, but the reality is, is less we we really grasp who he is with the fullness of our lives, we really haven't seen him. Today, as we jump into this very important message, I have two questions for us. I want you to ask yourself, can I see him? The second question is, how would I know that I could see him? How do I know that? Because you know, in the scripture, it says that you can't know God unless he draws you to himself. In the book of John chapter 6, verse 44. It's the next book uh, past Luke. This passage that we're in today, you can turn there if you wish, but I'll just read it to you. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless, unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can't go to God unless God draws you to himself. You can't. In Luke chapter 10, verse 21 through 23, Jesus is in prayer and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, we can't know Jesus unless God the Father draws us and reveals, us, reveals it to us, and we can't know who the Father is unless Jesus awakens us by the Spirit to see who he is. You can't see God. We can't see God unless God shows himself to us. So people say, well, I know Jesus, and you live completely life different. You don't see Jesus. Because if you truly see Jesus, you'll see it in your life. You know what? There are some that get close to Jesus, know about Jesus, that were raised and heard about Jesus. The greatest example of this is Judas. We know that name. The one who betrayed Jesus, he walked with Jesus. He saw the miracles of Jesus. He tasted of the bread that Jesus had blessed and multiplied. And yet, he didn't know him. He didn't know him. See, you can know about something and not truly know something. And that's what we're seeing today. And we need to ask ourselves that question. Can I see him? 
And how would I know that I could see him? Before we go any further, let's pray. Ask God's blessing on our message time. Father, we ask you to speak to us. We want to see you. So Lord, please show us how we can see you for who you are in all of your glory and go away transformed. We pray a blessing on us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So these guys, we have these guys. I'm going to set the stage a little bit to show you what's going on. These two guys are leaving Jerusalem, as I mentioned before. They're traveling seven miles. It's late. The sun, I imagine, is setting, and they're walking along, talking, trying to process everything that they had just gone through that had happened in Jerusalem the past few days. And Jesus starts walking up. Now, how would you like Jesus to walk up on a conversation that you're having with someone else? Have you ever had someone walk up and just stand there while you're conversing? And you're like, um, this is awkward. And then you try to include them and be gracious, but Jesus is walking along with them. He just pulls up. And having Jesus pull up beside you in a conversation, I, you just want to know what, I mean, we know what they were talking about. And I'm, I wonder if Jesus just smiled to himself because they're talking about him. They're talking about him and all that had happened. I mean, can, can we imagine that? It's, it's hard for us to grasp, really. I mean, imagine an athlete who just set a record for a perfect game or a singer who sang the most amazing and memorable concert in the history of the world, and you or your friend are talking about that person when they walk in the room and join your conversation. And according to verse 16, they weren't allowed to see him for who he is. So Jesus then walks up and asks him a question. He says, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? I really like the next part in verse 17. And they said, still looking sad. I'm going to give you a Travis paraphrase. They put on the brakes and looked at him and they went, say what? Like, what do you mean? Are, are you serious? Have you, are you the only person that's been to Jerusalem in the last few days and not know what's going on? You've got to be kidding me. So they, they just stopped in their tracks. And they turned to him and, and, they're, and they're, they're looking sad because they're processing it, trying to relay this news. And then... In verse 8, they said, uh, it says this, Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Do you not know what's going on? I mean, have you been living in a cave? And he said to them, What things? And Jesus, he knew what things. But he was wanting them to explain it because he's, he's drawn them out. What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers, our leaders, delivered him up, and they condemned him to death. They crucified him. But we had hope that he was the one who was sent to redeem us, who would overthrow the Roman oppression that we're under right now, that he was going to lead us and be this conquering king. Yes, and besides all this, if that weren't crazy enough, it's been the third day since everything happened. And some of the women that we know that hang out with us, they came and told us something that is unbelievable. They amazed us. They, they came to the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not, but him they did not see. See, they're trying to process this. They're like, we don't, okay, we thought he was the leader, and yet he, he was condemned, he died, and now his body's gone. I, what, we don't know what happened. We don't know what this means. 
And, and they can't see him. They can't see for who he really is. Now, before we can really see who Jesus, we have to understand something. The first step in this whole process for us to see Jesus is that we have to acknowledge something amazing happened with a person of Christ. Easter is a huge deal. It's the biggest holiday in all of the Christian calendar. It's the resurrection that changes everything. It is the hinge upon the, on which the door of Christianity turns, as Martin Luther said. Without the resurrection, we got nada. Nothing. Zilp, zero. We're just moralists meeting together. But if the resurrection is real, then it transforms us. It means everything. It's the mo- something amazing happened. I mean, I, and, and we've all gone through moments in history where we go, as I said before, what just happened? That, I don't know what Everything was, but it was something amazing. It was phenomenal. I mean, and we, we have that happen in our culture. There are certain things that we, certain people and certain events we know that are going to be amazing, and we want to tune in. We want to see it. We want to witness it. When Michael Jordan would play, people that never followed basketball started following basketball. They wanted to see what he was going to do from night to night. When Devin Hester was good, and he was getting ready to run back kickoffs, people wanted to turn in and tune in and say, what's he going to do? Or when Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were having their, their batting contest, people became that were not baseball fans started following because they wanted to know how many home runs did they hit? What was going on? It was something about them, something about that moment that we could witness history right in front of us. And these guys realized something amazing just happened. It's unlike anything in the history of the world. Nothing like this had ever been done before. Nothing about this will ever happen again. But what was it? What, what does it mean? I mean, it's, it's not something that had been done years before. Like we, last night, you saw the University of Kentucky lose in the uh, Final Four to the uh, University of Wisconsin. And they had the opportunity to get a perfect season. If they would have won and then beat Duke, they would have had a perfect season, which hasn't been done since Indiana University in 1976. But it had been done. And now people are going, well, it hasn't been done in a long time. And they think that's a huge deal historically. Let me tell you about Jesus, okay? That's a big deal that has never been done historically and will never, ever be done again. It is monumental. It is earth-shattering. It is life-changing. It is the greatest event in the history of the world. Something amazing happened. And Jesus is not a person that you can just forget and move to the side. He won't let you. Matter of fact, Larry King, the great interviewer, was once asked, if you could interview anybody, anyone, in all of time, who would you interview? So so he responds, and he's he's completely serious. He goes, I would interview Jesus. Interview Jesus. And they said, what would you ask him? He would say, I would ask ask him, were you truly virgin born? He goes, because that would define history for me. It would define everything about who I am, if it's true, if it's real. Now, it's true because Jesus defines history. I mean, think about it. Even he defines the term history. We talk about his story, right? Even how we calculate our years, right? We have B.C., we call that normally for Christ, and then A.D., which is not being used in schools anymore, right? But it meant what in Latin? Anno Domino, in the year of our Lord. We even chronicle history from that period of time. And people today, scholars, they say, well, we don't want that. We want to use BCE, before the common era, and then the common era. Which is funny to me, because they still go back to year zero, which is supposedly the birth of Christ. 
Like, we're going to reject that, but we're still going to time it to when he was born. That is stupid. Okay? So we see that he is the definer of history. I mean, and something amazing happened with him. Now, for us to really see something amazing happen and understand what it means, we need to get the facts straight. You need to get the facts straight. You can follow along with this in your notes. Write these down. Get the facts straight. Now, we have a problem with facts a lot of time. We had a real bright problem with facts. We, have mis- we misunderstand stuff all the time. Any man who has had to go to the grocery store to pick up something for his wife knows that he can screw it up. I'm serious. My wife has to text me she, just the other day. She goes, I need you to go to get JoJo some ibuprofen. And I mean, I can't believe the subcategories. There's ibuprofen for infants. And then there's ibuprofen for infants that's in liquid form that has to be dye-free up to eight hours. There's a million ibuprofens. I can't get all that straight. I have to, like, write it down on my phone and take a picture of it to know what label fits and matches. I got to get the facts straight because if I mess it up, I'm in, I'm in the doghouse. Right? We got to get it straight. Now, with, the, 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 with Christ, we got to get the facts straight. We are not free and have the liberty to make him be who we want him to be. You know, and if we look at it logically, there's only really four choices on who Jesus is. Okay? Either he's the Lord, he is the Lord of glory, he is who he said he was, which means that he deserves everything, he deserves our obedience, he deserves our lives because he is our creator, he is our Lord, he is our redeemer, he is everything. He's the Lord. That's the first option. Second option, he's either a complete liar. I mean, think about it. It, The guy claims to be God. He's a complete charlatan. He's just a complete liar. Or he's a lunatic. I mean, have you ever had someone come up to you and say, I'm God? Yeah, no. I don't think so. I remember I was preaching one time, and there's a guy, he was a friend of mine, he was in the congregation, his three-year-old son was sitting by him, and his son leans over in the sermon and goes, Daddy, is that God? And he goes, I hope not. (laughs) Okay? I hope not. Right? Right? But Jesus claims to be God, and they could lean over in the audience, and the kid could say, Daddy, is that God? And he goes, yeah, I hope so. Because he embodies everything that's right and true and real and fulfills a longing within my soul that I've never had before, son. So we see then that he has, we have to get the facts straight about who Jesus is is. I mean, so we have either he is the Lord, he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or the fourth option, he's a legend. We know how legends develop. I mean, think about the the old football player, okay? Think about the football player that you saw that game, and he ran for 125 yards, and people are like, wow, it was a great game. And as the years go by, he gets more and more yards somehow. Instead of running for 125, man, he ran for 350 and eight touchdowns. He actually fumbled six times and ran 125 yards, but it seemed like that. See see what I'm saying? We can distort things, and that legend develops about stuff that they did and and, uh, I mean, we think of Babe Ruth calling a shot. And, I mean, some people are, was he really calling a shot or was he just pointing at somebody? We don't know. And these are legends that develop around it. And people say that about Christ, that he was a legend. The problem is, is that the Bible is different than any other book in history. And it not just tes- doesn't just testify to this fanciful legend, but it gives historical facts and figures of people living in that time, in that era. And it was written down during the witnesses' lifetime, unlike... 
a lot of the stuff that we see within the Quran and Islam that's written down over a generation, actually over a hundred years after he dies, is written down. And this stuff is being written down in the time of Christ. And we have to get the, the facts straight about him. And we see, as a matter of fact, we don't even have it all because there was so much more about him that wasn't even recorded. So we can't even make it legendary because he already is. He's far beyond anything that we can possibly comprehend. We need to get the facts straight. And they were trying to get the facts straight. They're like, we thought he was the king. We thought he would redeem Israel. And yet he was condemned to die by our leaders. He was crucified. He was died. And his body's not there. They're not thinking in terms of resurrection. That didn't happen. They're trying to process all of this. They were confused. They were confused then, and people are still confused now. These two disciples are on that road to Emmaus. They believed that he would rule, but didn't understand how he had to die and come back again. And many t- people today have ideas about who Jesus is, but they misunderstand and are misinformed. And if we go to the scriptures and we read who he is, correcting our biases and our prejudices that don't give us a clear sight to Jesus, but it does help us. If we clear them away, it helps us in this process. They don't always help us to know him completely, but it helps clear away any fog. And that's the second step we have to do. If we want to see who Jesus is, we have to clear away the fog. Clear away the fog. We have to really clear away all of our misunderstanding, clear away all of our biases, clear away what we heard in a college class, clear away what we saw people had been teaching that had been completely hypocrites. We had to clear all that away. We need to go back to what the word of God says, because when we clear away the fog, we're going to see something amazing. Uh, a friend of mine, some friends of mine a few years ago or several years ago were, went to the Grand Canyon on vacation. And they had this beautiful room that they knew was overlooking, uh, overlooking the complete Grand Canyon. But while they were there, their first two days, they went out on their um, porch to see everything. And there's no rail, no guarding anything with them. And it's completely foggy. And they have no idea what's in front of them. And then the fog lifts. And they see the most amazing thing they could possibly see. Just this overwhelming sight. And see, the reality is, is we have to clear the fog away that keeps us from truly understanding Jesus. Clear away the fog of our personal experience. Clear away the, the fog of our misunderstanding and incomplete understanding. Because the reality is, is that we go through pain and sometimes we let that pain color us from seeing who God is. This, as I mentioned this past week, my son had to go to the emergency room. And he had to be admitted to the hospital. And he's 16 months old. And they told us that they wanted to put an IV in him. And my wife warns them. She goes, he is about to be the, you're about to experience the worst patient you have ever had in your life. And these guys see a lot of just crazy stuff. And so they're like, yeah, whatever. You know, this is just an overconcerned mom. And so they pin him down. They have this big guy, bigger than me, leaning on my son. And another nurse is holding his arms and pinning it so they can get the IV in. And he's screaming. He's pulling away. And they finally get the IV into his arm. And they thought it was done. Nope, that's where the real challenge begins. Because now my son grabs it and rips it out of his arm. But it won't come out. So now it's bent and lodged in his arm. And they're like, we're going to have to take it out and do it again. My wife went, nope. Just give him, what do you have to do? Give him antibiotics? They're like, yep. She goes, give him a shot. It'll be fine. And that's what they did. Okay? But I think about watching my son, what we were trying to do. Even if they're giving them the shot, and he's screaming. And this little guy, man, he's strong. Watching this guy just heave, I'm like, he should be a professional wrestler. No one will ever pin that kid. And he's like leaning up and screaming, and he doesn't realize that we're not trying to hurt him. We're trying to help him. And his personal experiences is, why are you hurting me? Because we're trying to help you. 
And see, God might allow you to go through an experience and you think God's trying to hurt you. God's trying to help you. And show him, show you who he is. We have to clear away the fog. See, most people don't understand. They don't understand what the scriptures say. And you know, the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 through 4, and you can turn there with me on page 965 or 12, uh, 27 in the large print Bible, if that's what you have. Paul is writing and he says that the gospel is veiled, that you can't see him. No one can see him. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. So if you can't see Jesus, you should be in fear because you are perishing. God is giving you over to your sin. He is not obligated to save you. See, we think that God is obligated to help us, that God is obligated to do what we want, like he's some performing monkey. And people say, oh, God, if you're real, give me a sign, as if God is this performing jester for you. And you're putting yourself in God going, I'm so prized, God. Show me who you are. God's like, you don't get it. I'm giving you over to what you really want. I'm giving you over to your sin. And I'm going to let you perish because that's what you want. It's only in his mercy and his grace that he reveals himself to us, that he shows himself to us. He didn't have to. He didn't have to give us the Bible. He didn't have to send his son. He was perfectly just and right to condemn us because we were guilty in our hearts and in our actions because of all the thoughts and deeds of our heart were continually against God. He didn't have to save you. He didn't have to show himself to you. He would be perfectly content and just to give you over to his wrath and let you perish in Christless eternity. But because of his love and his mercy, he loved you, that he gave his son for you, this great love gift, and we push it away. He says, I want to show you my love. I want to show you the depth of how much I care. We go, whatever, leave me alone. I just want to do my own thing. God is showing the depth of his love to us because our God, it says, as the scripture says, it's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And that veil is only, um, that veiling fog of unbelief is only lifted through the preaching of his word, through believers' love for the lost, and for other believers in Christ, through evidentiary display of God's power, through his people. And I have verses for all of those. As the scripture says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Because of preaching like I'm doing, and others are doing all over the city of Aurora and Fox Valley, Illinois, United States, and over the world, God is working through that to save people, to show the depth of his love for you. That's what he's doing. He's giving you mercy. It is no mistake that you are here this morning, that God sovereignly made sure that you were here to hear the word of God. God. And it's only when one turns to the Lord, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, that that veil is removed. See, we can only, and we can only have and turn to Christ when God reveals himself to us. And if we're to truly see Jesus, then we must understand our futility. You know, we, no matter how hard we try, we can't get to God. No matter how hard we exert ourselves, no matter how difficult it might be, we can't get in. You know, it's interesting. There was uh, some, some guys that broke into a stadium that had been closed down, and, and they took all these pictures of themselves because they, they could break in. They could get in, and it was great. You know, you can't break into heaven. There's not a back door. There's not a window that's been left unlocked. 
There's no way to get into heaven apart from Jesus Christ. And it's completely futile in and of ourselves. We are lost. We are hopeless without his mercy and his grace. And God gives us over to the sin that we want. That's what Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 25 talks about. Romans 1, 18 through 25, page 939. This is a very startling passage that should cause people to sober up really quick. The scripture says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. From what can be known about God is plain. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There's no excuse. None. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. He gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creators, the creatures rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, God gives us over to our sin. We may not think that we worship idols of stone, but we worship idols of self, success, self-esteem, self-sufficiency, pleasure, comfort, power, prestige, status, whatever else takes the rightful place of God in our lives. And for us to truly see Jesus, we have to go back and we must believe what the Bible says believe what the Bible says. I was a part of a group or interviewed for a job several years ago uh, with an organization that had uh, sought to give Bibles to every person in the United States of America. That was their goal. It sounds like a great goal. Make sure everybody in America has a Bible. And then they surveyed uh, many different people, I think 33,000 different people from different places, different uh, sections of life. And the problem was that people, not that people didn't have Bibles. They had them. They just didn't read them. See, we need to go back and believe what the Bible says and not only read it, but let it read us. And that's what he's telling them to do. Yes, he's talking to these two men on the way to Emmaus. And he says this. Um, he says that his coming was foretold in the scriptures. Excuse me. His coming was foretold in the scriptures. And in verse 25, we read this. And he said, this is Jesus, said to them, oh, foolish ones. You know what? I, there's a lot of terms that I, I don't want Jesus to call me. And that's one. Foolish one. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. See, Jesus starts off with Moses, meaning the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He starts off, and he, 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 he starts there and tells them a great deal about himself. What may you ask did he say? I mean, we can learn a few things, just a few things from the books of Moses, that he was to be born of a woman, Genesis 3.15. And he would come from the life of Abraham, Genesis 12. And Isaac, Genesis 17. Jacob, 
Numbers 24, Judah, Genesis 49.10. And then he went on to the prophets, and we could see that he had to be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah 5.2. Born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. A descendant of King David, 2 Samuel 7.12-13. He had to be a Galilean, Isaiah 9.1-2. And called the Nazarene, Isaiah 11.1. He would be rejected by his own people, Psalm 69.8, Isaiah 53.3. And he would be a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15. With an eternal priesthood, according to Psalm. 110 verse 4. And he would be a king and the ruler of an eternal kingdom. Psalm 2 6, Zechariah 9 9. He would be called Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah 7 14. And children would be massacred at his birthplace, according to Jeremiah 31 5. He would be a prophet like Elijah would precede him, according to Malachi 4 5 through 6, who would prepare his way, Isaiah 43 through 5. He would speak in parables, Psalm 78 2 through 4, and Isaiah 6 9 through 10, and be praised by. By little children in Psalm 8 and 2. And that's just the beginning. He was foretold in the scriptures. We're not talking about just a few days before. We're talking about hundreds of years before. They were told what to look for. That embedded, that would be embedded and be happening in their culture. That it would be there. The signs would be there of his coming if they would just see. Now here Jesus goes on to say, and he says in verse 25 again, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? See, here Jesus showed through the scriptures that he had to suffer. His coming was foretold in the scriptures and he had to suffer. Just in regards to his death alone, it was prophesied that he would be portrayed. Psalm 41 9. That money would be given to betray him and they'd be used to buy a potter's field in Zechariah 11. He'd be falsely accused in Psalm 35. He would be silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53, 7. He would be spat upon and struck, Isaiah 50, verse 6. Hated without a cause, Psalm 35, 19. He would be crucified with criminals, Isaiah 53, 12. Given vinegar to drink, Psalm 69, 21. His hands and his feet would be pierced. Psalm twenty two sixteen. He would be mocked and ridiculed. Psalm twenty two seven eight. Soldiers would gamble for his garment. Psalm twenty two eighteen. Not one of his bones would be broken. Psalm thirty four twenty and Exodus twelve forty six. He would be forsaken by God. Psalm twenty two one. Would pray for his enemies. Psalm one o nine four. Soldiers would pierce his side in Zechariah 12.10, and he would be buried with the rich, Isaiah fifty three nine. And these are just some of the prophecies that were foretold that he would suffer. These, I mean, these are things that came true. Things that would come true. Turn with me then, to, or look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, urged him, compel him. They kept bringing information. Please come with us. This is amazing what we're hearing. Stay with us. We want to know more about this. Please Hang out with us a little bit longer. We've got to hear this. And he says, stay with us. It's, it's late. It's toward evening. The day is now far spent. We've traveled a long way. So it says he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. So, so they get a glimpse, and then he's gone. He vanishes from their sight. Now I want you to notice verse 29. They really did urge him. They constrained him. They're heavily persuasive. They hit him home. They begged him. They heavily tried to get Jesus to stay with them. So Jesus does. They sat down. They got the food out. Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and broke it. And their eyes were opened, and he vanished from their sight. 
See, I believe that Jesus revealed himself to them through this breaking of bread because it was a visual representation of everything he had just taught them. He wanted to connect the breaking of bread to his death, much like communion is today. But these guys, they weren't going through the motions. They wanted to understand. They had faith and they were seeking to understand. And these guys were walking examples of Jeremiah 29, 13, page 656. And he says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. See, God will reveal himself to you if you, if you truly seek him. I'm not talking about saying, give me a sign, God. But if you really want to know, he's going to help you find it. He, he's going to show himself to you. That he will reveal. He will take that veil away. If you truly want to know with everything within your heart and the integrity of your heart, you're not just playing games and going through the motions. That if you truly want to know, he will reveal himself to those who truly seek him. And these two disciples really wanted to see and understand who Jesus was. So Jesus reveals himself to them and then vanished. And what, out, what happens then? I love this part. Look at verse 32. They said to each other, Did our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with him gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, what did these guys do? Remember, it's, it's what time of the day? It's late at night. It's, it's been a long day. They're tired. The sun is going down. And they don't have street lights. They don't have any of that stuff. They've been walking seven-mile walk from Jerusalem. That's a long day. This is a, is a big day trip. And they're walking, and it probably took them a few hours to get this done. And they're with Jesus. They're, hey, come on, it's late. Stay with us for a while. Camp out here. And as they're doing so, Jesus is revealed to them. And what do they do? Do they stay where they're at? No. They pick up their stuff, and they're saying, we're going back to Jerusalem. We're going back. It's late. I don't care. This is amazing. This is, this is worthy of a phone call at 3 a.m. There's not many calls that are worthy at 3 a.m. If you've got a call at 3 a.m., it could be me accidentally pocket dialing you. So forgive me. I'm up in the middle of the night with a child. Actually, I'm not. My wife is, so she knocked it accidentally. But we see here that they get up. This is, they get up and they go back to Jerusalem. In other words, when we truly understand and begin to see who Jesus is, it is worth a change of course. Your life is to change, of course. If you see Jesus, that's what it will result in, a life change, of course. Your life is different. It can't stay the same. That you can't, you can't stay where you're at. It changes you. It transforms you from the inside out. You have new desires, new wants. You want to please God. You want to tell other people about who he is. That's what it means. It results in a life change of course. They go all the way back that seven miles in the middle of the, I mean, it's late at night and they're doing it. Now, do you want to know how you can know if your eyes are open and you can see Jesus? If, if you want to change your life to follow him, that's how you know. If you're willing to do anything to make it happen, that's how you know. When God opens your eyes to the truth of who he is, everything changes. And this change, of course, is based on a faith that God gives you. God is the one who opened your eyes to see it. He was, their eyes were only open because Jesus chose to reveal himself to them. And then he vanishes. It's a faith that God gives you. God is the one who opened your eyes. He removed the veil. He lifted the fog. He caused you to understand and get your facts straight. God is the one who opens our eyes plain and simple. And it's a faith that God gives us, and then it is a fire that awakens us. It's a fire that awakens you. 
Does it say here, it says, did not our hearts burn, burn within us? He talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures. See, when God gets a hold of his soul, he lights it on fire. And it's a fire that can't be contained. As Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, he says, if I say, I will not mention him, God, or speak anymore in God's name. There is in my heart as if it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. I can't help myself. That it changes me from the inside out. It is a fire that awakens us. It gives us a purpose. It's a fire that is God's spirit yearning to transform and change us from the inside out. Do you have that fire within you? That hears God's word and wants what it says? Or do you hear and feel nothing? If that is the case, then you need to beg God to give you faith to awaken your lackadaisical and apathetic heart to who he is that you might be transformed. See, third, this is my last point. We know that this change, of course, is based on a fulfillment that transforms you. Fulfillment that transforms you. It's an interesting note that we see in verse 35 that Luke gives us, who's the author of this text. He says, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. It was, it was known to him in the breaking of bread. It's a very interesting note. You see, it's through the breaking of bread, which is a metaphor of satisfaction and fulfillment in him. As Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, verse 30 through 41. I'm going to read this passage for you. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? We want to see him. Show us a sign. We'll believe Show us a sign. We'll see and believe you. What work do you perform? Show us a miracle, Jesus. Show us a miracle. We want to see it. If you really want me to believe in you, do this thing for me. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven. God God showed himself then by giving manna. That's the miracle that he did to show the people. And 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 Jesus said to them in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Gives me. Meaning that God awakened them. God took the veil away. God brought them to himself. The rest of you see me. You might eat of the bread, but you don't believe. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is the bread of life, the one who gives life to the world and fulfills all of our hopes, dreams, and aspirations. He is our heart's delight. He is the only one who can truly satisfy. Everything else is an empty and fleeting illusion. Is Jesus drawing you? Has he opened your heart to see him, your eyes to see him? Do you have a burning within you? One that will not let you rest in your sin becomes with a conviction so intense that you can't but help respond and surrender. Our God is the God of hope. It's not a fleeting hope. 
It's not a hope that's equal to a wish. It's not a hope that floats, but it's one that's alive and well because our hope is in a man, a person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who literally rose from the dead. If you truly want to see Jesus, then you need to acknowledge something amazing happened, believe in the Bible and what it says, and then change the course of your life. He doesn't desire a delight that you might be destroyed. No, he delights in your repentance and responding to him in relationship, that you might be transformed for his glory and your joy, and that involves believing in the one God sent, Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified and died for you and then rose from the dead. It's God's receipt for sin that was paid in full. Have you ever had gone and paid for something and they give you a receipt? It's to show it's been paid in full. The resurrection is God's receipt that sin has been paid in full. He is the living hope that causes us to change the course of our lives and live in ways that delight in him. Do you believe? Do you see him? Do you see that evidenced in your life? If so, then call on him through repenting of your sins and placing your faith and trust in him and he will forgive your sins and transform you the life of his, the glory, for the glory of his name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God who loves us, that you are perfect, you are holy, you are true, you are just, You are merciful, you are good, you are wrathful, you are faithful, and you are love. Lord, we can't begin to understand the reality of truly who you are and all it is that you have done. Lord, if we were to stand by you on a field to hear of your accomplishments, we would respond and say, you are awesome. Lord, I pray that we might not just say we believe, but the reality of our belief might be lived out in our lives. We might not try to be laws unto ourselves as we so often do, becoming our own authorities, the captains of our own destiny, supposedly, not realizing that all of those actions are signs that we've been given over to our sins. Lord, we pray for your mercy and your grace that we've seen supremely exhibited in the person of your Son, and may our lives yield the fruit that is is representative of the truth that we espouse, that you are the Lord of glory and that you revealed yourself through the person of your Son in the Word of God that we might be saved. So Lord, please transform us, use us, and forgive us. Lord, we know that you are the sin forgiver and there are many in this room that we, we know all too well the sins of our hearts that are keeping us from seeing and following you. Addictions and unholy habits things that we prefer to keep hidden and away from prying eyes. But yet, Lord, we know that you see and that while we were still yet your enemies, that you gave your son to die for our sins that we might have new life in and through you. So, Lord, please draw us near to yourself. Help us to see you, to truly see you. And may our lives be lived accordingly for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.